So on, uh, on Tuesday this past week, um, some of you may be aware that 68 teams began a goal, began down a path to achieve one goal, the national championship. Anyone else out here national college basketball fans? Okay. How many of you filled out a bracket? How many of your bracket is like mine and doesn't look very good right now? So we have all of these teams, 68 teams that are competing in a single elimination tournament headed toward the one goal of achieving the national championship. There are some, myself being one of them, that would say it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? It is, it is just like you can just, you know, have it all right there. You've got like four screens going in your home. I don't know who would do that. Um, but imagine with me for a moment that that the star player on the team, who's been the star player for the team the whole year and had led their team through the tournament, had been doing great, got them to the championship game, had, had kind of taken the team and put them on his shoulders and, and gotten them there. And they get into a real fierce battle, and he's had a, a stellar game. And, and they find his team is down by one point with six seconds left to go in the game. And so coach calls a timeout and draws up this play, and he puts in a, a kid who's never been in the game, hasn't played all year. Okay, and somehow on the inbounds play, it blows up, and that guy ends up with the ball. And so what does he do? He takes one dribble and does the only thing he knows to do, throws it toward the bucket, right? But in this story, it goes in, right? And they win. The crowd goes crazy. Everyone's just jumping for joy. The other half is, you know, devastated, and and it's all exciting and it's all good. And they get down to the time where they're announcing the tournament MVP. And as they announce the MVP, they don't give it to the guy who's averaged 30 points a game, 12 rebounds, 4 uh, assists, and 3 blocks, who's led his team the whole year, who's played every minute of every game. Instead, they give it to the kid that just checked in, scored 3 points all year, and they happen to be the championship points. Now, as a sports fan, is that fair no, that, we, that wouldn't be right, would it? We would think, no, wait, 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 time out. You can't give it to the kid that just happened to make a lucky shot. You've got to give it to the guy who made the, the difference in the game, who got their team to that point, right? Now, I want you to hold on to that concept for just a few minutes here this morning as, as we prepare to get into our text. We are in our series that we've titled Kingdom Lessons, where we've been looking at various parables that Jesus told, looking at what the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of heaven is like. And if you haven't been here before or if you've been here every week, here's just a, a quick summary of where we've been uh, in this series. So far, we've looked at the, the story of the mustard seed and the yeast, and we talked about faith. We looked at the shrewd manager and talked about our dependence upon God's grace. The wedding banquet, we discussed humility, the weeds and the wheat, and we were challenged with patience. Last week, we looked at the forgiving king and the unmerciful uh, servant, and we talked about forgiveness. And we talked about how since we have received forgiveness from God, we too are to extend forgiveness to other people. And I have to tell you, that has raised a lot of conversation in this week. I've had several people call me and, and stop by and just, just different things to talk about this idea of forgiveness. And, and what it really points to the fact is that forgiveness is hard, isn't it? It's just really hard to forgive someone. It's hard to ask for forgiveness. And yet, 
since God is a loving and merciful and gracious and forgiving king, we are called to be like him. And, and Jesus desires for us to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. And it's, it's like a kingdom that has faith and dependence and humility and patience. And it includes forgiveness. So today, we find ourselves reading another parable of, of, that Jesus told about the kingdom of heaven. And it's, it's what the kingdom of heaven is like. This time it's from the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to invite you to, to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 20, and uh, if, if you're reaching for a blue Bible, it'll be on page 697. And what we find here in this text is, is the conflict between Jesus and those who oppose him continues to, to grow. It continues to, to get bigger all the time. And, and Jesus is telling parables uh, that are difficult for the people to, to really grasp. Not that they can't understand them, but it's just hard to, to understand that, that that's the way he really wants them to live. Jesus is, is moving toward the time when he will give his life for you and for me and for all of mankind. And, and we find this, this tension growing. And in chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable that I would suggest strikes at the heart of our sense of fairness and justice. I invite you to look with me at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to start. The text says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like, that's what we've been talking about, right? It's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, this would be a typical scene in uh, this time in, in the Bible. We have employment agencies that we try to help people find a job, but we also have uh, these places where day laborers gather for work, and that was the common thing that would, that would occur. Uh, these workers may or may not be skilled in a, in a trade. Uh, often, they're near the bottom of the socioeconomic uh, scale. In, in fact, in Jesus' day, many of these day laborers were just slightly above or even equal to beggars. They worked from job to job, many of which would last no longer than a day. And, and because they had no guarantee of the job lasting beyond that day, they would gather and try to, to find, find work. And they would gather in this place to be available to be hired. Now, working in a vineyard was not easy work. Um, often in Palestine, during the time of the harvest, the, the temperatures would reach 100 degrees or more. And because the grapes had to be picked uh, quickly before the bad weather set in, uh, they, they, had to, they had to work quickly, right? Uh, oftentimes, if the grapes were slow in ripening, the time of harvest could even be shortened still. And, and consequently, it was a hectic time. It was a demanding time. Uh, I grew up on a farm, and there were times that we would have to literally work around the clock take shifts and just keep going 24 hours a day so that we could get the crops out before the rain would come. It was an exciting time, but it was an exhausting time. It was hectic. It was rewarding, but, but it was just that time where, where you know it's a lot of work and you've got to get it done now. These workers were promised the pay of a denarius. Now, this was the wage of a Roman soldier, and, th and that might not mean much to us today, but it meant a great deal to those who were listening you see, a Roman soldier, it was not the most glorious or uh, prestigious job, but it was higher up the social ladder than a common laborer. And so the promise of that amount of pay to these workers, that would have been a good thing. They would have been encouraged by that. They would have seen that as quite generous. And so they agreed to this rate with great eagerness and went off to do their work. And from the context of the story, we can determine one of a couple of different things. Either uh, this landowner had a lot of property, or bad weather was coming, 
because he decided he needed more laborers to get the job done. Look at verses 3 through 7. It says, about the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again in the sixth hour, and in the ninth hour, he did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others still standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, that phrase, I will pay you whatever is right, back in verse 5, lets us know that the workers, they believed the landowner. They, they believed this master. They knew that he was a man of his word and that he would pay them what was right. He made no promise of a particular wage, but the workers determined it would be fair. Another phrase there, found others still standing around in verse 6, it doesn't denote laziness on their part. It just denotes uh, unemployment. Uh, they would stay there until someone would hire them. That's how badly they wanted to work. And, and this pattern continued for the hirings in the, in the third hour, in the sixth hour, and the eleventh hour. See, the Jewish workday began at 6 a.m., and that was called the first hour. So if you went to work in the first hour, you went to work at? Sharp crowd. I knew you guys could get this. So the third hour would then be 9, okay, sixth hour, noon, ninth hour, 3, and the eleventh hour would then be very good. See, you guys are really smart. So at this point in the story, uh, the, it kind of takes a, a, a dr- dramatic turn. The 11th hour, 5 o'clock, most uh, plantation owners, workers, it, it would be winding down for the day, right? The laborers waited for work, right? If you weren't hired, you were still waiting for work, but they had lost hope, I'm sure. But on this particular day, it was different. Their lives were different, and it was different because of the generosity of the landowner. It was clear that he was interested not only in getting his vineyard, uh, the the crops uh, harvested, but he was also interested in those who were not able to secure work for the day. We see two different groups that are hired here, and I'm going to put them in two different categories. We see those who were hired early and went to work after negotiating the wage of the denarius, and those who were hired later and went to work with no contract, choosing instead to trust in the goodness of the master. So those are the two different groups. Look at verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. Now, this was different because in the typical order that they would do that, the payment was first come, first served. And that makes sense to us, right? If I've been there all day, I want to get my money so I can go home. I'm tired. I've worked all day. It's been hot. I'm ready to go. But Jesus turns it around, and he says, last come, first served. And and I think that the workers who had been there all day were starting to get a little confused at this point. And Jesus continues in verse 9. He says, the workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received, what? A denarius. Now, Jesus doesn't say it, but the implication is clear that all of the workers, all those that were hired first to the very last, they were all paid a denarius. Now, imagine with me how the laborers who worked all day, right, how they felt about getting paid one denarius. Put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. How would you feel? Wouldn't your thought have been, well, if the owner gave those guys who came and worked one hour one denarius, then 
think about how much we're going to get. Man, we're going to get a bundle, aren't we? But imagine their disappointment when they received one denarius. I think I'd be a little frustrated at that point. What about you? It kind of bother you a little bit? And then things take a turn in, in this story. Look at verses 11 and 12. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us. Hold on to that phrase. We're going to come back to that in, in just a little bit. Equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. Working in the vineyard, it, it was hard work. They labored on a hillside in the heat of the day with very few breaks. So I think we can kind of sympathize with those workers. We can understand their complaint. Their joy turned to anger when they realized that they were going to receive the same amount that those other people did that just worked one hour. And as such, they were determined, I'm not leaving until I get some satisfaction here, right? We're going to go to this landowner and we're going to take care of this. But what we find is that it's simply a symptom of, of a bigger problem. They were upset that the landowner had made the other workers equal to them. And we look at the response in verse 13. But he answered, he being the master, he answered one of them. Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Here, the owner, the landowner, he, he kind of puts these guys in his place. This word friend is not the term that we would use for a close friend. It's more like a, a casual companion. And since the landowner only addresses one, the implication is he's kind of like the, the ringleader, you know, the spokesman for the group. Maybe like Peter of the disciples. You know, you go ask him. You, know, you go talk to him. You, you say these things. And the owner clearly states, I'm not being unfair to you. I'm just not. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Before 6 a.m. that morning, they had agreed on the price for their labor. At the time, right, at that time, a denarius was a fair, generous wage for their work. And both sides had lived up to their end of the bargain. What the landowner paid the other laborers, what the landowner did with his own money, was really of no business to anyone else. In fact, if the landowner had decided that he wanted to give half his wealth to one of the workers, wouldn't that be his prerogative? He could do that if he chose to, and, and we would look at him and think, wow, he, he was very generous with his, what he possessed. Then Jesus brings this parable to kind of a, a conclusion when he says, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. In the kingdom of God, our perceived position, it really makes no difference because God shows no partiality. In God's economy, things are kind of the opposite of what we might expect. And throughout this series, this is kind of what we've been trying to say in different ways. The kingdom of heaven, the, the kingdom of God, it inverts every aspect of our society. And while these messages, I think, are easy to hear, I think we've made them easy to understand, I, I think it's a lot harder to live out. Having faith can be difficult at times. Depending on God instead of ourself, is difficult. Being humble and demonstrating patience in a me-first society, it's tough. Offering forgiveness, letting other people go first, those are the characteristics of God's kingdom. But as we have been asking throughout this series, do we want it? Do we want those things? Do we want those characteristics in our life? Do we want those to be evident within us? Because I don't know about you, but when I read this text, I think to myself, that's not right. That's not fair. But I think it points out the fact that 
grace, it has an edge to it, doesn't it? It, it, it makes us see, see things from a different view. It's challenging. It's even disturbing. And if we're honest, I think we'd have to admit that, that grace is not the way we normally do things. It's not the way we normally live our lives. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey points out that part of our problem is the nature of grace itself. He suggests that grace is scandalous. It's hard to accept it's hard to believe. It's hard to receive. Grace shocks us in what it offers. It's truly not of this world. And at times, it frightens us for what it does for sinners. Grace teaches us that God does for others what we would never do for them. A lot of times, our thought is, well, I think God should save the, the not-so-bad people, right? The people like me. Right? Isn't that what we think? That if everyone was just more like me, then it would all be better. But what we see is that God starts with the tax collectors and the sinners, and then he works his way down from there. Grace is a gift that costs everything to the giver and nothing to the receiver. It's given to those who don't deserve it. It's given to those who barely recognize it. It's even given to those who hardly appreciate it. That's why God gets all the glory when it comes to our salvation. That Jesus did all the work for us when he died for us on the cross. In the end, grace means that no one is too bad that he cannot be saved. And God specializes in saving the really bad people. Like me. And like you. That's who he specializes in saving. Grace teaches us that, that God loves us. Grace teaches us that we can all be saved. And I wonder, do you have something in your background, something in your history that you would be ashamed to talk about in public? An addiction or pride or jealousy or contempt for someone? Fear of the unknown, anger issues, infidelity, gossip, whatever it may be. Can I encourage you by saying fear not because God knows all that? And his grace is greater than your sin. So what does this text mean to us today? What are the kingdom lessons? Well, I think it gives us an obvious kingdom lesson that I'm going to invite you to write down. In the kingdom of God, there's grace for everyone. I think that's, that's the main kingdom lesson that we can get from this. And it's God who decides who received grace. And, and it doesn't matter if you followed Christ your whole life or if you accept him at the very end of your life. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. Everyone who believes in him and accepts him as their Lord and Savior all receive his grace, all receive his forgiveness. And so I think the way we apply this text is this. We simply have to acknowledge that some are going to be saved early in life and some are going to be saved later in life, and that's just the way it is. But I also want to suggest that there's more to this passage that we can learn. I think there's some things about grace that that we need to think about and we need to understand and we need to apply to our own life so we can then in turn pass it on to others. And there are four things I want to point out, the kingdom lessons about grace. The first one is this, and hopefully you know this, but grace is a gift. It's a gift. Remember the problem in the text? The problem is not the injustice of a mean and cruel landowner. The problem is the scandal of the gracious, loving landowner. In verse 15, the the landowner asks the questions, are you envious because I am generous? I think one of the dangers we need to be aware of in our life is taking God's grace for granted. 
Now, there's lots of illustrations, but, but parents, maybe this one will make the most sense to you. Imagine your child on their cell phone goes over their data limit, right? Shocking, I know. It would never happen. They go over, you talk about it, you, you, know, you go through the whole thing, and then they do it again. And maybe you give grace again the second time. It depends on you know, what you talked about the first time. And then they do it again and again and again. There has to be consequences at some point, right? There just has to be. But there's many stories where kids, and you can read about them in the news all the time, where they just kind of run up the bill and they're like, hey, it's, it's no big deal. They just keep going over their limits. They just want a little more and a little more and a little more. And if that is our attitude when it comes to sinning against God, if after a time we begin to start demanding grace and demanding those things like the workers did in the parable, it's not what God desires for us to do. Verse 10 says that they expected to receive more. And what I want you to see is in the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as merit. There is grace. And grace is given according to God's good pleasure. Grace is received. It's not achieved. But many of us, uh, when we identify with the workers in this parable, who do we identify with? We identify with the workers who worked all day, right? That's, who we want, that's whose shoes we want to put ourselves in. We like to think of ourselves as being responsible workers. And, and when we think of ourselves as being responsible and we look at, at what this landowner did and the way he treated those who came early or later in the day that only worked a couple of hours, his behavior toward them it somewhat baffles us. And so I don't want us to miss the point of the story that, that God dispenses gifts, not wages. We do not receive what we deserve. I'm going to say that again. We do not receive what we deserve. If a wage is what we want from God, if we want to receive what we deserve, then the Bible says our salary has already been figured out for us. If we want to be rewarded for our merit, if we want to be compensated for our work, then we look at Romans 6.23 to see how we will be paid. For the wages of sin is congratulations, right? That's our wage. That's what we deserve, but if we want to receive what we don't deserve, then God wants to give that to us. The verse continues, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I, for one, am so thankful that I do not receive what I deserve. Instead, I receive what I don't deserve because grace is a gift. See, there's a couple of things I think that we need to realize. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Like a gift, the only thing we can do with grace is to receive it. And as a church, we're not going to try to guilt anyone into heaven. We're also not going to say that what you do doesn't matter at all. The wages of sin is death. Something must be done about that, and thankfully it was through Jesus Christ our Lord. We simply have to receive that gift and then live our lives in obedience to him. We need to be striving to be obedient to him. We don't want to sin so that grace may abound more abundantly. Instead, we want to obey him and we want to live our lives honoring him because of the grace that we've received from him. And that brings me to the second kingdom lesson about grace. Grace helps us see clearly. It helps us see clearly. I don't know how many of you have ever struggled with feelings of incompetence or experienced disappointment, maybe Maybe you wish that your, your role in life was of greater significance or you had a better position. Maybe you, you look at uh, yourself and you feel 
as though you are less important than others. Um, I have a really bad habit uh, of telling myself how big a failure I am. When it comes to uh, making a mistake or or sinning against God, it's hard for me to accept God's grace and to truly see myself clearly, to see myself the way God does. Because I think I should know better and I shouldn't mess up. Anybody else identify with that? You're just kind of really good at beating yourself up? just makes it hard sometimes. And yet think for a minute about those who were not hired until 5 p.m. that day. They watched and they waited while the other workers were hired. They, they knew they probably would not get paid for that day. They probably wouldn't be able to buy any food to provide for themselves or for their families that night. All day long, they were passed over like the last kid chosen for kickball, right? Just not selected. And at this point, I think it would be really easy for them to go down the, I am worthless, I'm a failure, I can't even get a day job, I will never catch a break path in their life. But what we see in this story is the Lord's passion for those who are forgotten. Usually the best and the strongest workers, they would have been pecked first, right? The workers that we see at 5 o'clock, they're the leftovers, right? The least skilled, who in their right mind would choose them? These workers really are the ones that we should identify with. They're the ones that most represent every one of us. Because when you think about it, What do we really have to offer to the Lord? Does he need our intellect? Does he need our strength? Does he need our money or our good deeds? No. The amazing thing is that our standing before God is not based on what we have or don't have, what we do or we don't do. It's based on on who Jesus is. It's not based on our intellect or education. It's based on who has come for us and who has come and said, be mine. Paul understood this when he wrote in Philippians chapter 3 that even though he was from the tribe of Benjamin, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was a Pharisee among Pharisees, he was faultless in righteousness, he had more accolades than anyone else, he considered all those things as valuable as a used piece of toilet paper compared to knowing Christ. And I wonder... With all of our accolades and the way we, we try, to, try to accomplish all these things, if we ourselves could adopt that same type of attitude. Because when we stand before our Savior, there will be no distinction between male and female. No distinction between races. No difference between the most educated and the dropout. No difference between the uber-rich and the least of the poor. In God's kingdom, we see clearly that we are more worthy than no one else. We are, we are the same, that we receive forgiveness and grace because we are unworthy. Not because we are worthless, but because we are unworthy. And that brings me to the point that grace makes us all equal. We all stand on equal plane before God and before the cross. The worker's complaint in verse 12, if you look at it, is very interesting. They say, you made them equal to us. It's interesting, they don't really complain about their wage because they knew that their pay was generous. Yes, they they wanted to receive more, but what they were upset about was they wanted to be seen as superior. Uh, The word grumble in the Greek is in the imperfect tense, and all that means is that they didn't complain just once. They were in a constant state of complaining and of grumbling against the landowner. And that helps us see what kind of workers they really were. Uh, Notice this. They didn't say, so if you've got, you've got the guys who worked all day and those who came the last hour. They did not say that you have put us on par with the latecomers, moving us down to their level. That's not what they said. 
What they said instead was, their complaint was, you have put them on par with us. You've moved them up to our level. In other words, even, even though they desired and expected to receive more, the real issue was they were, he was envious, the workers were envious as to what the landowner did for those other workers, how he elevated them. Compared to the upstarts, those guys who just worked an hour, they saw themselves as superior, as better, as stronger, as more able, right? And that was their complaint because they thought they were worth a lot more. And how dare the landowner bring them up to their level? And there's a part of us, I think, that really desires for God to give us grades so that we can compare ourselves with one another. Wouldn't that be fun sometimes, right? To kind of get your report card to see where we stack up and go, oh, Bob McKillop, where am I with him? Oh, I got some work to do, right? Or he's got some work to do. Feel better, right? That's what we want to do. And when we realize that, we have to realize that when we compare ourselves with other people, one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to feel a lot better about myself or I'm going to feel a lot worse about myself, right? It's the same way. As you compare yourself with others, that's your only two options. Instead, we need to see ourselves the way God sees us, that grace makes us equal. I want you to notice the tragic chain of events that took place in the hearts of these workers. They started out doing what? They started out comparing themselves with others. And that led to coveting, which led to complaining, which led to them ultimately criticizing the landowner. And I wondered, would any of those words describe you or your actions or your attitude? God declares in his kingdom, in the economy of grace, that we are all equal. Paul challenges us in Romans chapter 12, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. You know, we've talked about this over the past several weeks, and it's so important. We need to not be so hard on other people. We need to stop looking for things that don't seem like they're fair to us. We need to refuse to criticize. We need to give people grace, the same grace that we desire to receive. We need to allow that grace to be bestowed on other people as well. In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, God makes us all equal. The other thing grace does is grace makes us new. It makes us new. The life of a believer is really a series of new beginnings, moment by moment, day by day. It's what grace is all about. No one is really first and no one is last, which is where we're talking about the equal part of this as well. But it also makes us new every day. It's the idea of, of I'm no better than you and you're no better than me. You're no worse than I am. I'm no worse than you because we're all covered by God's grace and he's making us new each and every day. That's why I think Jesus used such radical language in verse 16 about the first and the last. Look, look again at what he said. He said, so the last will be first and the first will be last. So the last will be first and the first will be last. But notice what Jesus said. If you go to the top of your text, go to chapter 19, the very last verse, and you look at what Jesus said, right before he told this parable, he said, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Jesus changes the order, doesn't he? And he's, he, what he's, I think what he's trying to do is to, to let us see that the last and the first and the first and the last, that the lines, they're all blurry, and it all blurs together. And it's as if Jesus is trying to make us see, look, first, last, it just doesn't matter. In the kingdom of God, it's about 
grace. It's not about finishing first. It's not about finishing last. It's not about counting at all. It's not about keeping score. In fact, grace means that you don't even have to finish because Jesus has finished for you. Do you believe that? Can you accept that? Because on the cross, Jesus shouted, once and for all and forever, it is finished. The job is done. The reality is that that Jesus, who is the first and the last, who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and and the end, he tells us that we do not need to fear. Carl Jacobs said this. He said, in the one who is both first and last, the first and the last are brought together when we are called to lay down the burdens of our days and find our home with God. And I think one of the things we can draw from that is he desires for us to be new and to find our home with God each and every day of our life. It is our desire as a body of believers that each and every one of us find our home with God and that we allow him to make us new. And we do that by accepting his grace in our life. Accepting it day after day. Accepting it through what Jesus has done for us. This morning, maybe you need to receive his grace in your life. Maybe you need to receive it for the first time. And we want to invite you to do that in your life. To realize that you are undeserving. That you need a fresh start. That you need to be forgiven. And that God desires to forgive you. He desires to welcome you into his family. We are going to invite you to respond to the Lord this morning. And if you want to talk to someone if you want to have someone pray with you, if you just want some, to know that you're not walking alone and you want someone to walk with you, we're going to invite you to make your way to the front of the auditorium or to the back of the auditorium where staff and leadership team members will be more than happy to meet with you and to pray with you and to encourage you. This morning, we want to invite you to respond to what God is doing in your heart and in your life. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing. As we worship together, you respond to what God's doing in your life.